Today's message is geography, blood, and power. That sounds like some sort of crazy novel, doesn't it? Geography, blood, and power. And that's what we will be talking about today. Our text is Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. Uh, it's part of the Christ is Better series. And our purpose is to learn more about this text, which describes the Old Testament sacrificial system and its New Testament counterpart. Uh, beyond that, we want to learn about the power that is accessible to us through Christ, so that we may experience the fullness of God's grace in our lives. Uh, I believe that God has something to say to all of us today, and I pray that he will give us ears to hear, hearts that will be responsive to him. So we're going to take a look at geography, blood, and power, and we're going to start out with the Old Testament section, which is in Hebrews 9, 1 through 10, and then the corresponding section in uh, Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. And just a total disclaimer here, as I started working on this message, I realized that whatever I was going to say would take way too long. So we are going to focus primarily on geography. It'll be a little lighter on blood, and we will also be talking about power, but we'll, in a, in a future Sunday, we'll be fleshing out how blood relates to geography and power more. So our primary old tabernacle here. Does anyone remember what a tabernacle is? Just shout it out if you know it. It's a tent. And then here's another one. Does anybody remember what the name, the Hebrew word for tent is? That is so funny. You, I, if I had had any other word that I had mentioned, Hebrew word, uh, you would have never remembered it, but the, the Hebrew word for tent is ohel. So, um, so the tabernacle is a tent. It's mobile. And uh, the first um, ten verses describe this, uh, this sort of lower tabernacle. It is the, uh, where the presence of God is said to dwell. Sacrifices were offered there, worship of divine service. But worship was regulated. Hebrews 9.1 says, Now the first covenant, so this is the lower tabernacle, the agreement, if you will, the, uh, the contract between God and people, the covenant, um, the first covenant of the Old Testament had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. So it was regulated worship. There's a Hebrew tradition uh, of the pomegranate having 613 seeds. You can go buy one and break it open, see if it actually has 613 seeds. I don't know if it does or not. But the tradition is a pomegranate has something like 613 seeds, and those are the number of laws in the Old Testament. It's regulated worship, highly regulated worship. Um, and... The other thing that uh, is good to remember here is the location of a tabernacle or a tent is subject to change. The, perhaps a tent isn't the best place to sleep if you've done that, um, but it is very mobile. You can take the thing up and you can move it somewhere else, set it up, and move there. And the, and the idea behind the tabernacle, later there will be a temple that is a fixed place, but the idea behind the tabernacle is that it was mobile. It was a mobile place where God met with his people according to the regulations that had been established there. And so 
the, uh, this, this uh, tabernacle and, and everything else was established in the book of Exodus, uh, and Exodus 19 describes God meeting with the people, uh, particularly Moses, on Mount Sinai, and, and Exodus 20 talks about the, the Ten Commandments, and then everything proceeding from there talks about the different regulations and the particulars of the tabernacle. But here, if, if you want to learn about that without so much detail, in 10 verses we can learn about, uh, about that system. So the tabernacle was sent up. In the first room, there was a lampstand, a table with consecrated bread. I'm reading from uh, Hebrews 9.2 here, by the way. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the room called the most holy place. So we've got the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place, um, actually in front of it, was the golden altar of incense, and inside of it was the golden-covered Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark is sort of like a box with cherubim on top of it. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, as described here, it contains a golden jar of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Hebrews 9 verse 5, above the ark were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atonement cover. And he says, but we can't talk anymore about that. That's as much as you get here. Um, so in Hebrews 9, 2 through 3, it describes a uh, sort of a, a portable building that has two main sections, the holy place and the most holy place. Now, uh, behind, there's a, behind the large, heavy curtain, there is the Ark of the Covenant, that box that had those items that we described. On the outer section, the very front, there's going to be this table with bread, there's going to be this golden lampstand, and then just before you enter, there's the altar of incense. Now, uh, we're going to talk about these particular items, what they symbolize, what they meant, and then once we get through all this, we're going to talk about why this matters. So just bear with me here. This is important information, uh, and you're, you have the benefit of not having to read through several books of the Old Testament to get it, so, uh, so enjoy here. The, the golden lampstand was no doubt necessary um, to light the room. There was a need for the light in a darkened place. It was fashioned after an almond tree, Exodus 25:33, with its buds and branches, and there were seven sort of branches of this lamp coming up, which we believe correspond to the symbolism of the and created in Ephesus is one removed. It's favor. Now the bread on the table, which was replaced weekly, how many do you remember how many loaves of bread there were? Not seven. Oh, come on. Are you guys listening or not? How many, how many loaves are there on the table? Five? Seven? All right. There's 12 loaves. 12 tribes of Israel. 12 loaves. 12 disciples. 12 apostles. So 12 loaves are on the table. They get replaced weekly. How many loaves are on the table? Awesome. Okay. All right. We got something here. Um, so the, the bread on the table reminded the people 
of God's provision for the 12 tribes of Israel. And that God would provide for them everything they needed. Before entering the most holy place was the altar of incense. Now, we talked about the altar of incense around Advent. It was what the priest was tending to when the angel visited him. Only a certain type of incense could be offered on the altar of incense. It was God's special recipe. Uh, Once a year during the Day of Atonement, the altar of incense had to be cleansed with blood. You can see Leviticus 16 and 23 for that. And in Psalm 141, 2, Revelations 5, 8, 8, 3, and Luke 2, the altar of incense is associated with prayer. The idea is as the smoke from the altar of incense went up, so did the prayers of the people. And then, we're getting closer here, the most holy place in 9.4. Behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold and containing three items. Do you remember which three items these were? It was the manna, staff, tablets of the covenant. Yeah, tablets of the covenant. Great, stone tablets. So these are the three items inside this box that where God was said to meet with people. And so the manna was God's provision from heaven. It's a reminder of the people's indispensable daily need for what God would provide. It was also a reminder that stocking up bread from heaven could not get around the daily need for God's provision. As the story went in the Old Testament, God provided manna from heaven. You could collect whatever you needed for a day, as much as you wanted, and you could collect twice as much for the Sabbath, so you didn't have to collect it on the Sabbath day. But if you tried to stock the stuff up, it turned nasty and gross and and putrid. And the idea is, hello, people, I'm going to provide for you everything you need, but you can't get away from me having to provide you everything you need. You can get as much as you want, eat as much manna as you want, but don't try to stock it up for the next day. First of all, it's useless, and second of all, if you do, I'm going to make it really gross. Well, there's probably some sort of lesson for us on there, too. Now, there are many legends concerning the staff of Aaron, some of them confusing it with the staff of Moses. But the symbolism of the budded staff of Aaron is made clear in Numbers 17, where God clearly shows his choice of leadership to the nation of Israel. Uh, This happened after Moses and Aaron's positions were challenged by the people. And so told Moses, take their staff and write their name. They put it and then they waited. And the staff, which, so this is dead wood. It's something somebody's using to walk around with. The staff of the one I choose is going to sprout. And so it was Aaron's staff that sprouted. Not only did it sprout, it, it sprouted, it had blossoms, and it started bearing almonds. So this is Aaron's staff. And the point of Aaron's staff is God chooses the leadership, and the leadership of the priests were going to be from the line of Aaron. So that staff was in there. Now, uh, finally, we have the Ark of the Covenant, the stone tablets uh, with the Ten Commandments uh, inscribed on them. These are the uh, tablets that Moses had to chisel out. Now, if you remember the story, the first Ten Commandments God gave to Moses, and he inscribed them himself. 
But when Moses came down the mountain and saw the people in idolatry, he was so mad, he threw the stone tablets down, broke them, and uh, the people had made an idol out of a golden calf. He took that golden calf, he ground it to dust, and made the people drink it, mixed it with water. So uh, then Moses went back up in the mountain, and God said, guess what, Moses? You're chiseling out the new Ten Commandments. And so those are the Ten Commandments that are inside the Ark of the Covenant. It's not the whole of the law. Remember, there's like 613 laws, but there's 10 of them that describe the heart of the law, and those were inside the Ark. Now, above the Ark were two cherubim with their wings spreading out over the Ark, over the box that contained everything there. And the cherubim symbolize the reality of powerful heavenly beings that worship God. Uh, Psalm 99.1 refers to them. Uh, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits between the cherubim, let the earth shake. Now, below these cherubim was the mercy seat, and um, it had a gold lid framed by these wings of the cherubim between God's presence, uh, where God's presence was said to appear in Exodus 25, 22. It says, there I will meet with you. And this word for mercy seat also is sometimes um, rendered propitiation in connection with Romans 3, 21 through 25. Propitiation has everything to do with blood. So blood would be offered and God would meet with the people in that particular place. So that is the geography, or the, the layout, of the lower tabernacle. It gives you an idea of what's going on there. And we are going to, as I said, we are not going to spend a ton of time on blood because we, we're going to save that for uh, a future message here. I want to make sure we have plenty of time for it. It's very important. But uh, I am going to um, read these next three verses here again. Uh, when everything, so this is Hebrews 9, um, uh, 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly through the outer room to carry on their ministry. So the, the priests could enter in the outer room to carry out their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room. So the, the regular priest could enter the holy place, but only the high priest could enter the most holy place where the ark was. And then only once a year and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was functioning. So when it came to the outer chamber of this tabernacle, when it came to the holy place, priests would go in there, they'd replace the bread, the showbread, they would light the candles, they'd keep them trimmed and in good condition, they would light the, uh, the incense and have the smoke go up. Those were regular occurrences, but only once a year and only the high priest could enter into the inside, the inner part where the ark was, where God's presence was said to be. And so... The blood had to be offered first on behalf of the high priest and his family. And so it was to cleanse his sins, to cleanse the sins of his family. Then it could be offered, once he was cleansed, 
on behalf of the people. So even sins done in ignorance still required substitutionary sacrifice. The idea of the sacrifice is the animal that died, its blood, was substituted for the person who actually committed the sin. In this way, people didn't have to die for their sins, but an innocent animal was killed in their stead. So we will focus more on blood in the next section, as I mentioned, but it's helpful to remember this cannot enter into the inner part of this tabernacle without blood. It's a requirement in order to make people right with God in order that they might have a relationship with him. Let's talk about the power. So this is uh, Hebrews 9.9, and it says, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. All of this is just simply an illustration. These are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. In fact, while this old system stood, the new system could not take place. The road was closed. The road to God, the path to his presence, all of this was like a shadow or a signpost pointing to what was to come. So these... Uh, the, the tabernacle and the articles within it were merely symbols, an illustration, a parable of what was to come. And the geography of the old, uh, the old tabernacle, that lower tabernacle, and the source of the offering was such that the blood offered there actually had no power to cleanse the consciences or cleanse the actual acts of sin of the worshipers. It didn't actually have that power. It had, it, it was an external sort of thing, but it didn't have the reality. Game of the old, it was not useless. Another time, okay? Are you ready for an upgrade? All right, good. I, I, I think I'm ready for an upgrade. I don't wanna go, you know, doing this, this, this system here, but, it, but God gave us a major upgrade in the New Testament, but it does correspond with the Old Testament. We're going to learn a little bit how. Uh, in Hebrews 9, 11 says, But when Christ appeared as high priest, but Christ, of the good things that have come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made by human hands and not of this creation. In this new era, we have a, a better high priest, a better tabernacle. And geography relates to earthly things, right? Geo means earthly. Um, but although we're using this term, Jesus, well, the tabernacle that Jesus entered has nothing to do with geography as it refers to the earth itself. It's greater than that. Jesus, the tabernacle Jesus entered was one where the actual presence of God dwells. And this new sanctuary is qualitatively better than the old one. And so um, there is a technique that the author of Hebrews uses called from lesser to greater, from lesser to greater. I want to uh, illustrate this technique using the idea of the earth uh, and creation as it relates to its creator. So here we go. 
Um, lesser to greater. If you were the creator of heaven and earth uh, and about to create the world, how would you make it? Um, would it be flat, round, or some other shape? Uh, would it be wet on the outside and fiery on the inside? Um, this is part of a piece I wrote earlier considering that topic of God's fantastic work when it comes to geography. We live on the thin crust of a spinning ball with fire at its center and iron at its core. The ball we live in dances through the sky with other ball-like planets and bright, fiery stars. It seems impossible that as we walk along a path or swim the coolness of a lake that the earth is spinning faster than the speed of sound and traveling 67,000 miles an hour around the sun. Far below us lies its 8,000-degree molten core. What is man that you were mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, we ask? Amidst the complex web of creation with its fantastical distances, spinning globes, and dancing stars, could it be true that the one who made all these things cares for us. God loves you, I hope you know. But think about this too. When it comes to the visual observance of geography, the, the ball of light that hangs in the sky seems un, unusually warm and bright, but it's small. It warms the earth and from a distance we can tell there's power in the sun. But from where we stand, we cannot tell with our eyes that it would take about a million planets to fill the interior of the sun. While the earth is 8,000 degrees at its core, the sun is about 27 million degrees Fahrenheit at its core. The sun that warms the Earth is only a medium-sized star in a galaxy with over 100 billion stars, so they tell me, that has a universe inside a universe of over 100 billion galaxies. So actually, um, no one really knows how many stars there are in the universe. We're only guessing based upon what we can observe. So here's the point. Geography is normally the study of a planet. Uh, it's physical characteristics, it's people, the environment. Uh, but think about the context, the geographical context. Uh, we are a tiny people on a tiny planet in the immensity of creation. We are small. On the other hand, God designed us in such a way that powerful objects seen from a distance, seems small to us. It's hard to imagine the scale or the power only from what we observe. So if we were to stand in the sun, we would burn up in less than a second because of its immense heat, but from where we stand on the planet, it seems like just a small ball hanging in the sky. So on a smaller scale, we view the ocean from a distance. If you've ever done that, you hear the, the roar of the waves, it looks so beautiful. But if you're standing next to it and there's large waves going down, it feels very different. The power seems greater when we're up close. It's how God designed us. Really big, powerful things seem small in our eyes. But that says less about us than it does about God. 
God uses seemingly small things to display his immense power. He gives a glimpse of what is often um, displayed as a greater reality than what we understand. When we truly understand the immensity of what God has done, we will ask the question, the same question David asked in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? We're small. And we've only spoken of the context that our planet exists in, the geography of creation. Now let's take that. Remember, we're in an area that we're saying from lesser to greater. So now let's think about God's throne room or God's tabernacle. How big is that tabernacle? The real one. The real one where God actually does dwell. Where his being fills the throne room. Isaiah saw a vision of that, Isaiah 6. And he was overwhelmed by the immensity of God. So what we have here that we're looking at, this tabernacle, this earthly tabernacle, is pointing, it's, it's like a little tiny thing that's pointing to something far greater than itself. All of the parts and pieces are, it's true that these are elements of the lower tabernacle, but when we get to the upper tabernacle, it's like looking at the earth compared to the size of the universe. Actually, it's probably a tabernacle that does some things. That God is responsible for creation. The bread that sits on the table that God provides all things. The smoke coming up from the altar of incense, God's special recipe that has to do with prayer and the importance of our communication with him. Can you believe that the creator of the universe wants to communicate with us? And the ark where the, these little cherubim, little golden cherubim are there. Can you imagine the immensity of those cherubim and the power that is within them? And the blood of animals. How potent was the blood of animals? Not very potent. It happened year after year. All these animals died to point to something greater. The power of the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. The immense, immense power. All of these things relate to blood. They relate to power. They relate to God's desire for a relationship with us. And when I, when I think about these things, I think about how small am I, how small are you, or this place that we're in, how small are all these things, how small is the earth itself, and yet God uses these small things to do magnificent works to, to display his power. He has said that we are important, and we look at ourselves and we go, how can I be important in the sight of God if God's that big? We are important because God says we are. Let's talk about the blood of the upper tabernacle. In Hebrews 9.12, it says, Not through the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, he entered once and for all in the holy place, or this most holy place, obtaining an eternal redemption, a ransom. Jesus did not enter the upper tabernacle through the blood of goats. No way. He entered through his own blood his own immensely powerful blood. 
Jesus being part of the Godhead, somehow deigning to become human, and his blood that was spilled is what he comes into the throne room with. That is the blood that is there on our behalf in order to bring us into a relationship with God. It's, it's, it's something we, you know, sometimes we don't really think how important that relationship is, that God himself would have this huge, hugely important offering in order that you and I might become redeemed. But that's what happened. And as I mentioned, we're going to be talking more about blood and power in the future here, but um, moving on, Hebrews 9.13, for if the blood of goat, now this is a lesser to greater argument, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on uh, the defiled sanctify or make holy for the purification of the flesh, so they're outwardly cleansing, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our consciences from acts that lead to death in order to worship the living God. So the blood of bulls and goats, we're talking about the, uh, the blood of the goat, the that the, uh, the and you sprinkle it on somebody who's been defiled, and you can imagine you've been defiled, and you're like, ooh, I have to have this stuff sprinkled on me. I'm glad that we're in the, uh, the, the uh, second uh, version of the tabernacle here, so we don't have to do that. But the idea is that we need to be made clean. We need to be made clean, and it can only come through these offerings. Now, if these offerings in the small, dinky little tabernacle that was created in Old Testament times, if, if that pointed to something, and, the, and you know, think about the seriousness of your sin. If you saw animal after animal dying on behalf of you because it's substituting for your sin, you kind of get the idea, hey, my sin's important, the, the blockage is important, and God is serious about getting me reconciled with him so that I can live a life uh, pleasing to him. How much more the powerful blood of Christ in that upper tabernacle that is greater than we could ever imagine. There's power. There's immense power that is taking place here. We are, we are the recipients of God's immense power through the blood of Christ in the upper tabernacle. We are small, tiny, dinky things in the universe, but God says we're important and has done that for us. Why has he done that? It says, How much more has the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, Jesus has no blemish, he's a, an offering without blemish, to, in order to, cleanse or purify our consciences. So that's the first thing. We need to have our consciences cleansed from Acts that lead to death, we need our consciences cleansed from acts that lead to death so that we can serve the living God. Our consciences, or our hearts, or our spirits, we're spiritual beings, but we're also physical beings. So the physical things that we do that are wrong mess us up spiritually. We are we are, it's not like we're divided and this part's spiritual and this part's physical, but those two things go together. And we need to have our 
consciences. We need to have our spirits cleansed. We need to have that part, our hearts, that, that part of our being has to experience cleansing. But also, the acts that lead to death, the dead works, the, whatever we've done that is deserving of punishment need to be atoned for. And that's what the blood's for. And so, not only are we physically redeemed, but we don't need to carry that baggage around anymore. We don't need to live in a space that we've been so affected by what's taken place physically, what we have done wrong or what we've not done right. Or, uh, you know, the older you get, you start looking back and going, man, I really messed up here. And we can look back and say, no, we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus in the upper tabernacle with power. So what does that say about your heart? You know, our hearts are also a tabernacle. It said that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, dwells in our hearts. And so what does that say about the cleansing our hearts have experienced or can experience? It means that we don't need to live in a place of anxiety. We don't need to live in a place of depression. We don't need to, whatever the things are, that, that thing that wakes you up at night, and you think about it, and you have trouble sleeping, that does not need to take hold anymore of the power of God through Jesus to cleanse our consciences is what we need to be thinking about. There is power, spiritual, real spiritual power available to us to live lives of redemption. And God wants to do that work in our hearts. Now, I know there are things that are beyond our control and we can't fix those things. We just keep on going back to, like, I, I, can't, I can't handle this. I can't fix this relationship. I can't fix this area of provision. I can't, can't be provided. Yes, that may be true, but it is not outside the scope of God's power. And you need not live in a place of shame and fear and anxiety as a result of that thing because there is power to cleanse consciences from acts that lead to death so that we can serve. That's the purpose. Renewed relationship, renewed purpose for God. Some of us uh, start this journey. Ways of, uh, or an important step towards starting is to pray and ask for God's forgiveness for our sins and saying that we want to follow Christ. We want this real spiritual power in our lives right now. We want the Holy Spirit to take over. We not only are are uh, removed from this, the, this place of death, but we're brought into new life through the Holy Spirit. And an important step that goes along with that is baptism. We have a baptism coming up on June 27th. If, uh, if you've never been baptized, or maybe you've been baptized as an infant, you want to be doing this as an adult, um, that, would be, uh, that would be something you should really consider. It's not only a mark of obedience to God, but it's also... I believe, um, I believe it's a place that God really meets with us. And then um, we talked about uh, this idea of gratitude for what God's done. Uh, that's another place to meet with God. So as we are living our lives out as Christians, 
um, we, can, we can get confused because we live, you know, if you look at the parable of the four soils, uh, I think we live in the land of the weeds. I mean, there are so many weeds growing up all over the place in the United States. It's, it's incredible. All these things that compete with the important things in our lives. And they go up right beside it. God, baseball, you know? I mean, there's, it's just, it's, it's crazy. The things that we worry about. I remember when our children were little that uh, they were saying, can your child pick up a raisin? Because that's, that's an important developmental step. Forget it. God is so far above what we could ask or imagine, and his power is so much more potent that it dwarfs everything else in our lives. And our proper response to him is a, proper, is a response of gratitude. And so if we're able to give God thanks, um, if we're able to give of ourselves, of our resources, if we're able to give of our time, all those sorts of things, um, it is a proper response to God. The, the giving um, doesn't really help us if we keep on trying to make ourselves right before God without the first step of just saying, yeah, God, I want, you, I want Jesus to take over my life. I want to ask forgiveness. The other part doesn't work too well. Nor does it work feeling bad about our stuff and then not realizing that God is going to change it. We want both of those sides. And so we want the side where we say, yes, things are messed up, but Jesus, take the reins, forgive me. And thank you, God. And I trust that what you do in the future will be powerful in my life and the lives of others. And that's why I want to share this good news with other people. And then um, the, uh, the last uh, kind of response I might give to this is a prayer. That prayer is, is communication with God. It is a way for us to have a relationship with him right now. It's, it's very real. Uh, we can give thanks in prayer. We can confess things that are wrong in, in prayer. We can complain in prayer. God, this really stinks. Please speak into my life right now because this situation objectively stinks. I need your help. The psalmists do that all the time. We read it and we're like, whoa, this person, is, are they, are they even you know, a, a God follower? <laughs> they are. They're struggling through some hard stuff and they're coming out on the right side of things. And that's, that's our example. Uh, one little fun thing is uh, we, we've been coming uh, as a group to pray on the property uh, f- five o'clock? Five o'clock on Mondays. Uh, and, and so a group of us have been coming. We've been praying uh, for our community, for just all sorts of things for a little bit. And then we've been walking over and checking out the progress of, of the construction during that time. And, and uh, uh, this last week, we learned, we're, we're trying to figure out who, who is going to uh, uh, Put the cross. Who's going to build the cross for this new building? And uh, we're struggling for a little while uh, to figure out who that would be. And finally, we we uh, landed on someone. It turns out that person is an. We didn't know this, but they're an elder at the church, one of the churches that helped to plant LifeSpring, and uh, not organized by us or him. He is praying in that church for us today. And, uh, and so we're just looking at some of these God sightings and going, wow, you know, things that God's doing in people's lives, things that God's doing uh, in the church, uh, many different things. Uh, it's an opportunity to come around to say, let's, let's stand here together. 
Let's pray, give thanks, and glory to God. Well, as we close out, I want to, uh, I want to finish uh, with what I'd written before here, uh, a challenge to us. Is it possible that the God who created this wonderful and astonishing place for us to live loves us? Or that the creator who established a beautiful garden on the crust of a fiery spinning globe also has a human heart? Beautiful garden on the beauty of God's... It's been those from the dust and love and truth. One day in that heavenly city, those who are his will serve him again. They will see his face. His name will be written on their foreheads. But as we wait, let's tune our ears to his voice, our hearts kindled with his spirit. And though this world spins all around us, let us hold fast to the Son of God through whom all things were made, the word of life and an anchor to our souls. Please pray with me. Father, uh, words cannot explain the immensity of who you are. So we come to you as your creatures in awe of your presence. You are not part of this world. You're beyond us. You're not even part of this universe. You're beyond that. So how can we even think about the immensity of who you are and where you dwell? And yet you have made people in your image. And you have called us not only to be redeemed from our stinky situations, but to be cleansed and redeployed through the power of Christ in us. Let that be so. In the name of Jesus, amen.